Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Gospel of John. My name is Jonathan Chan. So glad that you can continue this journey with me as we embark on John chapter 2, verse 13 to John chapter 3, verse 36. Now, before we begin, let's start off with a video clip and we'll be right back. We have to do something about the Millennium Bug. The Millennium Bug? Are you telling me that Han Solo's ship is here? That's the Millennium Falcon. I'm talking about the year 2000 problem. Y2K. Oh, yes. Uh, um, T3G. Pardon? B9C. <laughs> B9C? Look, if our computer systems are all connected to Black Betty, some ancient mainframe... Oh, oh, E4J. This is fun. We're out of business when the date changes. You mean all the technology is going to... break? Yes. Is there any way this collapse of civilization thing could affect me personally? I think it might. Okay then. You have my full support to fix the problem. Unless it involves any sort of resources or decisions or effort on my part. Remember, money is no object. Unless, of course, you plan to spend it. Me? Why is it up to me? Because you brought it up. You know the rules. He who complains is assigned to fix it. Well, welcome back. Have you ever said to yourself, I cannot believe I completely missed the point. Well, I have, and apparently, according to my wife, I still do. When I'm having a conversation with someone, or the person is trying to explain something to me, or I'm reading their emails or their text, what was supposed to be obvious for me seems to have just skipped away and me being me i completely missed the point i misinterpreted their message or i misinterpreted what they said to me what the person was trying to say to me i completely misinterpreted it maybe i'm getting old so i'm losing my hearing or maybe i'm just completely aloof or probably busy with something that i wasn't paying attention or maybe i just jumped to a conclusion and use that conclusion as the filter for what they were saying. For example, if they were using a particular tone that I, that I just don't like, uh, a sarcastic tone or a hostile tone, I just misinterpret their message as if their message's main purpose is to judge me. Or maybe they used a word that just triggered my brain and suddenly that I just jumped to a conclusion using that word and I could only think about that word and so whatever they're saying to me, I just misinterpret it because I'm more focused on that word. Today, as we embark on John chapter 2, verse 13 to 336, we see that the Jews completely missed Jesus' point. You see, Jesus in these passages performed some signs and signs that were supposed to be so obvious for the Jews. Why? Because they're so entrenched in Old Testament. They, knew their, they know their uh, prophecies, they know their Exodus stories, they know all their Torah. So when Jesus performed these signs and said what he said, they should know exactly what he meant. Yet they completely missed his point. 
Why? Why did they miss his point? Jesus was pointing to himself as saying, I am your Messiah. But not only that, I am God, the very God you were waiting for. And yet the Jews completely missed the point. Why? Today, as we embark on John chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to 336, we come to a example, maybe a presentation from John of telling us why or what are some reasons why the Jews missed the point and why we may have missed the point or why sometimes we miss the point. Let's begin. John chapter 2 verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade or emporium or market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, let's put Jesus's actions in the temple aside for a moment and look at how John set this stage up. Two notable mentions that he gives us, Passover and temple. Now, if you were a Jew back in Jesus's day, what is the significance of the Passover? Well, the Passover is a reminder of their first ever Passover in which God delivered his people, the Jews, from Egyptian slavery back in Exodus. When God declared to Pharaoh through Moses in Exodus 4.22 that Israel is my firstborn son. And after when he said that, God delivered the final blow at Pharaoh by passing over Israel, who is God's firstborn son, and killed the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh's firstborn son. Remember that story? So for the Passover, it is an important event for the Jews. It's the reminder of God's power. It's a reminder of God fulfilling his promise in delivering them from slavery and oppression. It's a reminder of God's love for them. It's a reminder of how God showed up and, and a reminder that they are God's firstborn son, i.e. God's children. The next important mention by John is the temple. All right. The Jews in Jesus' day viewed the temple as a reflection of their identity, i.e. God's chosen people and firstborn son. The temple is where heaven and earth connected and where God, the Father, met with his children through mediators, i.e. priests. And because the temple is so important to their national identity, it's also the economic center, political center, and moral center of Israel. However, this temple in Jesus' day is way different from the previous temple that Solomon built. You see, the temple that Solomon built was destroyed by the Babylonians when Israel was in exile. Now you wonder, okay, wait a minute. John, give me some history here. What happened at that temple and what happened to Israel at, during that time? Well, Israel depended on the temple and not on God. See, they almost saw 
the temple as a lucky charm, a superstitious little lucky charm, saying that, and I quote, we have the temple, no one can destroy us, no one can defeat us. Instead of trusting God, they trusted the temple. And so God placed judgment on Israel for their idolatry. And how did he do it? He sent the Babylonians to destroy the temple and place Israel on exile. Okay, fast forward. So this temple in Jesus' day was rebuilt by a Roman governor. Now, why did he rebuild it? Well, he didn't build it just because he wanted to honor God. No, he could care less of that. Why he built it was more for political brownie points and just to get the Jews on his side. You know, pat him, like get some brownie points and pat on the back from the Jews to uh, reduce the uh, political unrest and rebellion from the Jews. It's a way that Romans work on preventing rebellions or revolt, right? And politics are like that. Look around you, politicians do the same thing, right? So in Jesus' day, this temple, the second temple, was mainly for political brownie points. Yet the Jews also saw that as their identity as well. However, there's a big difference between this temple and the temple, the first temple in the past, Solomon's temple. The big difference is that God did not come to meet his people in this new temple. See, this temple actually represents Israel's yearning for God to come back to speak to them and reestablish his anointing on his children as the firstborn son. Israel lost that title way back when they were in exile. And now they're still in exile because they are under Roman rule. They don't have their own identity. And so they are depending on this temple, this temple is a reflection of their yearning for God to come back. So you could say that this temple is for people who are waiting for God to come back. You could say that under Roman slavery and under their oppression, that the Israelites are again in exodus, that they are waiting for their exodus. They are waiting for God to deliver them from Roman slavery, from Roman oppression. But most importantly, for God to come back, make his presence among his people, make his dwelling among his people, connect with his people, and call them his children once again. So, the temple, the Passover, put them together. What do we have? The temple is a representation of Israel's yearning for God to return, and also Israel's yearning for God to free them, to send them a Messiah, to free them from slavery, from Roman rule, and most importantly, to, to have God's presence come back and dwell among them and in them through his spirit. All right, now we have all that. So the question is now, okay, they're yearning, they're waiting for God to come back. Why has God not come then? Why is what is Israel doing that is preventing God from coming to save his children? Just like the exile back in when the first temple was destroyed. How come God is not saving his children? Could it be that they are currently committing idolatry as well, just like last time? Are they still committing idolatry? 
Now we come to Jesus' actions during Passover at the temple. Jesus turned over the tables of the money changers, accusing them of turning his father's house into a market. Instead of identifying the temple as the temple, like the first temple, Jesus now says something that would raise not only eyebrows, but I'm sure some tempers. He said that he pointed that uh, that this is his father's house. Now, the Jews knew that the temple is God's house and they were his children. But this time, Jesus identified this house as his alone, meaning Jesus is taking the title of God's firstborn son away from the Israelites and place that title solely on himself. Think about it. Israel, the Jews, for like the longest time, believed that they were the firstborn son. Some people within the Jews, like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, or the temple priests, or in various sects, even went further in saying they are the only ones that were the firstborn sons because they followed the commands, they did their rituals, they were very religious, etc., etc. But now, in comes Jesus and says, I am the true firstborn son and no one else. How would that make you feel if you were a Jew back in the day? That might get you angry, right? For the longest time, you were the firstborn son. You wanted to be the firstborn son. Or let's say you were a Pharisee and you were saying, you know what? I've done all my religious duties. I followed the rules. I was upright, never broke a law. I'm clean, clean shaven. Well, maybe not clean shaven because they all had beards, but you know what I mean. And in comes Jesus and say, I am, you're not. Ouch, that hurts. But so in comes Jesus and for Jesus to flip the tables on them, throw down the money. What is he doing? He's basically taking authority away from the temple priests and whoever is in charge of the temple. Because it was the temple priests and whoever is in charge of the temple that allowed these markets to happen, right? But Jesus now is taking authority away from them. So one, he's telling that this house is his house, his father's house, meaning I am the true and one only son, true and one only firstborn son. Second, Jesus flipped the tables, meaning you guys, pointing at the temple priests, are no longer in authority. That's painful. No wonder the priests came back at Jesus and said this. What sign do you show us for doing these things? In verse 18, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Destroying the temple again? Destroying the very symbol of Israel's national identity as God's children, God's firstborn son? This happened before. When Israel was in idolatry consistently, God destroyed the first temple through the Babylonians. And now Jesus says, destroy this temple. But was he referring to the building or something else? The Jews and priests 
thought he was referring to the building. And so they responded with the 46 years. But Jesus, which the disciples figured out much later after his death and resurrection, was referring to himself. So if I were made to make a guess, Jesus was pointing to himself and the building going like this and like this when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. So he was really pointing to himself. The Jews and priests completely missed that. Yet Jesus is saying the very symbol of who God's firstborn son is, is now Jesus, not a building. The one person as opposed to a nation. The very symbol of God's connection with humanity is now Jesus, a person, not a building. The true son of God, the true people of God is now one person, Jesus. The Jews and priests steeped in Old Testament, people who should have made this connection because they should have known better than anyone else, they completely missed that point. Instead, they were still angry at Jesus for rebuking them for turning his house into a market and for claiming that Jesus was the true firstborn son. They were still mumbling, how dare you think you have the authority over us and tell us we're wrong. All right. You might be asking now, all right, John, the first temple was destroyed because of Israel's idolatry. Now, what is Israel's, Israel's idolatry that is going on in this temple that basically nullified the temple's status? In other words, the temple is no longer the temple, right? The temple is now a market. It's not a temple where God connects with his people because God's not there. And also, basically, Jesus wasn't pointing at the temple. He was pointing to himself. So this temple is obsolete or destroyed for metaphorically. So what is Israel's idolatry that was going on that just nullified this temple status? That the temple is not what it's supposed to be anymore. Well, if you're reading John, you should also be aware that John assumes that his audience, the ones who is reading his gospel, also knows the gospel of Mark. Yeah, we have to assume that, well, John assumes anyway, that you and I and whoever is reading this gospel is also familiar with the gospel of Mark. And so we have to look at where in Mark did Jesus did the same thing of turning over tables and shooing away sheep and oxen and donkeys. When you turn to Mark, after Jesus' triumphant entry, there were notable narratives that involved with money. See, there was a parable about money and how the servants or landlords uh, didn't want to hear that they were wrong because they were more concerned about their money. There was a rebuke of paying taxes to Caesar because the Jews loved their money so much that they didn't want to pay taxes to Caesar. And then there was a rebuke to the Pharisees and the temple priests about how they treated widows. Remember the widow's offering where she gave all she had? Those two coins was all she had? The temple and the temple priests were more concerned about her two coins than caring for the widow. So if you just gather all that together, what was wrong with the Jews? What was their idolatry? Money. Money and, of course, power. Because if you love money, it means that you love power as well. And hence, when Jesus pointed to himself as the temple, what he's saying 
is that the, this temple, the building that you thought it was your symbol and a reflection of you being the firstborn son of God and the connection of God to God and your national identity and your yearning for God's presence, it was destroyed long ago already. It never even existed because of your idolatry for money or idolatry to money. So that's why the Jews completely missed it. They completely missed the point. It was their idolatry, their, their desire and their love of money clouded their whole lens, you could say, so that when Jesus made these obvious signs and made these obvious sayings, it should be obvious to them, right? But unfortunately, they were clouded by their desire for money. Let's move on. Now there was a man, oh, now we're in John chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come, teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in, believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a highly educated, devoted Jew, perfect in every way, flawless when it comes to the law, followed every single law to the T, and John says he's a ruler, which means that he also provides a moral compass and also enforces the Mosaic law onto people. He meets Jesus at night. What he says to Jesus tells us about who Jesus might be for Nicodemus. For Nicodemus, Jesus is probably a prophet from God. For prophets show signs. And for, in order for prophets to show these miraculous signs, it means that God is with him. So he wanted to meet with Jesus to see if Jesus was a prophet. Probably a prophet he hopes, that would pat him on the back saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You indeed, you indeed are a child of God. Not only that, a firstborn son, and I am here to free you from Roman rule. Now, or saying, here I, I am telling you that God will free you from Roman rule. Instead, Jesus tells him two notables that would have made him realize who Jesus was because Nicodemus knows his Old Testament really well. Two things, water and spirit and Moses' serpent. Let's look at water and spirit first. Water and spirit is a reference to Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25 to 27. Let's take a look at that. God is, saying, God is talking here to a rebellious Israel. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus referenced Ezekiel, where God tells the rebellious and idolatrous Israel that he will clean them from all uncleanliness and idols. That if Israel turns to God, believes and obeys God again, God will give them his spirit i.e. the very marker of God's children. It's not by following the law that ensures Israel to remain God's children. No, it's impossible. That's what Ezekiel said. It's only when his spirit is in people. Nicodemus should know this, but he appears to be stuck on the whole born again thing. Then Jesus revisits Moses' story about the serpent when Israel again committing idolatry and turning away from God. See, when Israel turned away from God during the Exodus in uh, Numbers, God sent serpents to bite the people of Israel, bite a bunch of Israelites, and they were dying. And so Moses pleaded to God for his mercy on behalf of Israel. And God, in his mercy, told Moses to raise up a serpent on a staff. And whoever believes in these words, in these instructions of Looking at the serpent, they will be healed. All right. If you were a very rational person and you're dying of a sickness and somebody's telling you, just look at that serpent on the stick and you'll be healed. Would you believe that? See, that's how irrational it was. And so God says, can these people, these Israelites trust my words and look at that serpent? If they do, if they believe, they will be saved from their illness. They would be saved from dying, basically. Nicodemus knew these stories. He knew that. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus, like the Israelites, that they need to repent and start over. He needs to repent and start over. To believe that Jesus, to believe, <laughs> to believe in Jesus, sorry, to believe in Jesus so that, like the serpent story, Nicodemus and the people of Israel will have eternal life i.e. become God's children. However, at this moment, Nicodemus seems to completely miss Jesus' point. Why? Well, remember my introduction. It seems like the Jews, priests, and Nicodemus already had a conclusion that whatever they were doing was the right way to remain as God's children. Remember this. They thought and they believed that they were God's firstborn son. And God's spirit will be upon them when he returns because God is not there yet. And through God's spirit will give them eternal life because God's spirit and eternal life work hand in hand as identity markers for God's children. However, when Jesus arrived, no matter how many times Jesus referred to the Old Testament, the very words that the Jesus knew so well, front and back, the Jews completely missed Jesus's point. When Jesus said, he is the true God, the true son of God. And if you believe in him, they will be cleansed. They will receive the spirit and have eternal life and be called God's children. They completely miss the point. Why? Well, first off, we mentioned that the Jews' sin was idolizing money and they really loved it. And also, the second point is that they thought that they were already in and that whatever they were doing, the religiosity that they were doing by keeping the law and by keeping the various festivals, 
They thought that they were already in and they're just waiting for God to pat them on the back and say, well done, you are my children. They were so proud of this. They were so proud that they were already God's children and they were doing the right thing and they were doing all the religiosity stuff. They completely ignored their own sin of idolizing money. They didn't want Jesus or anyone else to rebuke them of their love for money. And so instead of focusing on their sin, they were so much focused on their religious pride that when Jesus addressed their money problem, they just wrote Jesus off and completely missed the point. Hence, Nicodemus, when he was talking to Jesus, he, he too completely missed the point. He thought that he was doing all the right things. He was saying to himself, look, I followed the rules. I followed the law. I followed all the religious practices. And look, I like look down. I even got myself circumcised for it. I am in. I am God's child. I'm just waiting for his spirit to come. Yet Jesus said, for God so loved the world. And Nicodemus goes, wait, what are you saying? Are you saying that God loved idiots that I don't like? Are you saying that God loves those people who cut me off in traffic? Are you saying that God, are you saying that God loves the cheaters? Are you saying that the God loves the divorcees? Are you saying that God loves the selfish and the inconsiderate? Are you saying that God loves those people who are in jail? Are you saying that God loves the crooks? Are you saying that God loves those people who are not as religious as me or as wealthy as me or well-to-do as me? Are you saying, Jesus, that if those believe in you, they will be called children of God, have eternal life and receive the spirit? That's nonsense. And hence, Nicodemus was still stuck on the whole born again thing. He completely missed Jesus' point, for he was so entrenched with his own pride, his spiritual pride, and also, unfortunately, his desire for money, that he completely overlooked his own sin and unable to see what Jesus was telling him. To conclude, I wonder if we missed the point when we read scripture. Sorry. I wonder if we missed the point when we read scripture because of our sin and pride. That when scripture addresses a core sin of ours that we gloss over it or say to ourselves that, you know, that passage isn't talking to me. It's talking to someone else. Are we allowing Jesus to flip our tables? Are we allowing his spirit to flip our tables when we read scripture? Or are we just reading scripture as if it's just merely words on a page that we love these tidbits of facts and knowledge and then yet it doesn't impact us or transform us. In other words, are we allowing scripture to be the water and the spirit so that we can be cleansed and born again by the spirit? Another one, are we also entrenched in our own religiosity, thinking that, hey, we follow the rules, we follow, the, we are upright, we're good to go, and yet we neglect to remind ourselves that Jesus is available for everyone, that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and be God's children. Do we see around us people who may have made wrong choices or folks who really make us angry or folks that like um, the anti-vaxxers or the, or the people in the truckers convoy, freedom convoy. Today's date is February 9th. So yes, they are still out in Ottawa protesting. Or even 
back at home when people don't even follow the rules of throwing their compost. Like, why would you put pizza box, pizza boxes and cardboard in a compost? It says compost, people, not cardboard. Don't even put plastic bags. Don't even think about putting plastic bags, yet they still do. Man, that makes me angry. Yet I am reminded that God loved the world. In other words, for God so loved those people, he gave his only son. For God so loved me and everyone else, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Are we able to receive these people as Jesus has received them? Because if we can't, we also have what the Jews had back then, and that is spiritual pride. So, to just round it up, could it be that whenever we read scripture that we may be missing the point because of our desires, of our sin, of our idolatry for maybe, maybe it is money, and also the inability to realize that Jesus is, can be received by everyone, that God loves everyone, that God loves the world that he saw the world worth dying for. Can we see everyone as how God saw, sees them, people who are worth dying for? If we don't, we might be completely missing the point as well. We might be completely missing the point of the gospel of the gospel's offering of grace and mercy to everyone. We may be missing the point that, hey, it's not about getting what we deserve, because if we did, we wouldn't be here. It's all about God's grace and mercy shown on us through Jesus. If we don't see that, we probably need to pray to Jesus and say, please flip our tables in our hearts. Amen. Amen.